Let's stand together and let's turn on our Bibles this morning to the book of Romans chapter 8. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage we're studying today for your convenience. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, speaking to us as Christians, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that's what makes us Christians, is this spiritual birth. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is uh, life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And therefore, brethren, we are, not, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of being able to turn to your word this morning. And as always, never alone, but in fellowship with you and with your Holy Spirit, we thank you as we hold this Bible in our hands for the influence that you have given it in our lives, how you have transformed our lives through it. We are not the people we would otherwise be just by virtue of this living word doing its uh, awesome, miraculous work within our lives. And we thank you for that. We thank you for how far you have brought us in growing in Christ-likeness and growing into the Christianity that you describe in your Bible and then to enjoy all of the blessings and freedom that comes with that, Lord. And we pray that you would be in this teaching today in our study of your Word and that you teach us a little bit more about yourself and about what you've called us to. We pray for that work of your Spirit in each one of our lives today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we mentioned last week, and last week was kind of a part one of what we didn't have time to really take care of in a single sermon, and so today is part two. And, and, but as we mentioned last week in introducing this section of Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 5 here through uh, 12, the theme of Romans chapter 6 through 8 is uh, sanctification. And very, very significantly, I think, and I'm never afraid of repetition uh, related to these things, but very, very significantly, the Apostle Paul laid out to us uh, as Christians in uh, chapter 6 here uh, of Romans how it is that uh, our salvation not only involves the forgiveness of sins, addressing our past needs, 
and uh, not only provides us with the absolute guarantee of one day spending eternity in heaven, completely overwhelming all of our future needs, but what we're so prone to overlook, Paul makes the emphasis of chapters 6 through 8, and that is that God has also saved us and provided us with the desire uh, to live a holy life now as Christians, and then the power to live uh, a holy life, to live a victorious Christian life free from the bondage of sin. And in chapter 8, as Paul comes to this chapter, he formally and fully introduces us to the single greatest individual, the single greatest thing and key to a victorious Christian life, to a holy uh, Christian life, and the key, the greatest figure, the greatest ingredient in that is the person of the Holy Spirit. And so he makes the Holy Spirit uh, the focus of this, uh, this chapter. The victorious Christian life can only be lived by the person and the power of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Because when he comes into our lives, as we've already mentioned, he brings into our lives a desire to obey God's Word, a desire to live the life that's described in Scripture. That doesn't come from you. That doesn't come from me. Look at how different your life is from the one that you once had. Or look at how different your life is uh, as a Christian from what you would know you would be today if you had not come under the influence of God's Word and did not become indwelt by the Holy Spirit and Him beginning this wonderful thing of bringing a desire in our life uh, to obey God's Word. I remember as a boy uh, reading the Bible or attempting to read it and not yet born again, and it just seemed like the nice ideas. <laughs> all of it sounded great. I didn't understand most of it. And all, and, and, but then the Holy Spirit comes into my life when I'm born again, and now he, uh, he opens up the book and he plants within me this desire to obey it. And, more, uh, and, and desire is the word, an absolute longing, a craving to enjoy this life. And then not only does he provide the desire and the craving, but he provides immediately on the heels of it the power to live the life that we see described uh, in the Word of God. And Paul puts all of this so perfectly in Romans, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He said, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now uh, much more in my absence, work out, not work for, but he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's what he provides to our lives. But Paul in chapter 8 here, lest any of us as Christians uh, be deceived into thinking that our sanctification or our holiness or our entering into the victorious Christian life is solely uh, the responsibility uh, of the Holy Spirit and the idea that we would play no part in it uh, at all and, and uh, uh, personally or that if our Christian life is one currently in the privacy of our own heart this morning, we look at it and say, uh, my life is completely carnal, it's completely dominated by the flesh, dominated by sin. 
And then there is that temptation so often to conclude that I am in the low spiritual condition that I am in by virtue of some failure on the part of God, some failure on the part of the Holy Spirit. He's promised me a holy life, and here is the life that I'm living. It must be uh, because he has failed me uh, in all of this, as opposed to what Paul brings out here, that when we live such a life as a Christian, uh, there is always a failure on our part. And in, t- in verses 5 through 13, the Apostle Paul lays out the part that we are to play in our own sanctification. Uh, the part that we're to play in cooperating with the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work within our lives. And uh, he addresses four things here, two of which we looked at last week. I'll repeat them, though, for context here. Number one, first, that we're to refrain from uh, living according to the flesh or setting our minds upon the things of the flesh. Second, as we saw last week, we're to live according to the Spirit and to set our minds upon the things of the Spirit. And then for this morning in verse 12, uh, that we are to recognize that we are debtors as Christians to live the life that God calls us to. And then the fourth thing in verse 13, the necessity of mortifying the deeds of the body uh, in all of this. And so again, last week we examined the first two of those points, the importance of being godly, the importance of being discerning about the sowing and reaping process uh, within our lives, that negatively we are never to sow to our flesh, and that we have a responsibility to protect the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit within our lives as Christians by refusing uh, to sow into our hearts and minds anything that introduces or nurtures ungodly thinking or temptations. But then positively, as he declared, we're to go even beyond that and sow to the Spirit. How it is that we need to sow into our lives the things that will build us up spiritually, that will build up our inner man, the new person that we are by virtue of the Holy Spirit's entrance uh, into our lives. And as Paul laid out and we saw last week, there is this inescapable relationship Uh, that exists between what we set our minds upon and then the life that we end up living. And now this morning as we head into new territory in verse 12, Paul tells us the third part that we're to play in our own sanctification is to recognize that as Christians we are debtors to live a holy life. This is not an option. It is something that we are debtors to do. That word debt as you see it there Uh, in uh, verse 12, it means uh, uh, one under obligation, one who must repay, one who owes others something. And what it speaks of here, as Paul uh, declares it, is it speaks of an obligation. It speaks of a debt that every Christian owes, not for our salvation. That's a free gift but at what we owe because we have been saved. And the debt that we owe now is to live a holy life and to be faithful to God. Now, you think about a debt, and you, we ask ourselves, who do we owe this debt to if we owe this uh, debt? Who do we owe this obligation to? Well, I think supremely to Jesus is a start. And when we consider the price that Jesus paid, in his incarnation and coming into this world, 
and then to live as he did for the 33 and a half years, and then ultimately dying that death upon the cross, his burial, his, his resurrection, and all that he went through, not only to provide us with salvation, and to provide us with the uh, forgiveness of sins at enormous expense to himself, but then the uh, providing us with the confidence of eternity being spent in heaven. It's something we never have to give a second thought to as Christians. But then he has also came into the world and then died that death and experienced that burial, in that burial and resurrection to also provide us with the privilege of living a holy life. Uh, to live a life that is consistent with a, a citizen of the kingdom of God, to live a, Christ, uh, a Christ-like uh, life. And we have an obligation not to live according to the flesh, but in light of the price that was paid, instead to live, as Paul calls us here, uh, to live uh, for the Spirit. And this was the mindset of Paul. He considered himself a debtor all the days of his Christian uh, life. Also, the, the mindset of the apostle Peter, and he calls on us uh, to make it our mindset as well. Let me read it for you in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. He said, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that you should no longer live the rest of your time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And so we're a debtor to Christ to live a holy life, but we're also a debtor to the Holy Spirit, who astonishingly, really, I mean, you think about it, the Holy Spirit who condescends so low as to be willing to indwell someone like me, and to indwell someone like you, to think about how low the Holy Spirit must condescend to enter into any of our lives as Christians, however good or bad or naughty or nice we might have been when we became Christians in comparison to the general population. What a step down he has taken to be willing uh, to do that within our lives. And he who comes into our lives for the very purpose of providing us with a spiritual birth, providing us with a fresh start in life that no one else could provide to us uh, but God himself. And then he brings with it himself the desire then to produce uh, holiness within our lives and, and to do so as he comes into our lives with all of this, with, I think, not the unreasonable expectation that holiness would then be the priority of every single Christian, and that in his efforts to sanctify us and to prepare us for heaven, that when he endeavors to do that great work within our life as Christians, uh, it's unthinkable from the vantage point of heaven that that would meet any resistance at all on our parts, but that that uh, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit within our lives would always be met with gratitude and be met with uh, cooperation. And so there is that obligation to the Holy Spirit. 
Paul wrote elsewhere in, in the New Testament in this regard, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He said, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I think about in terms of obligation in, in my life, and I, I put it out as a consideration for you as well. I think about what I owe and we owe in terms of an obligation to Christians past. The Christians uh, uh, who shared the gospel with us in the course of our life, that one day we might be saved and that one day that message would receive the illumination of the Holy Spirit upon it, and we would recognize this is the end of our search as human beings. This is what we were created for, and then enter into this uh, Christian life, this born-again life. But we think about the Christians who shared the gospel with us in order that we might be saved. Think about all of the Christians in your life. Just think about them. It's very personal. I mean, it, all of us, our minds go in different places. To all of the Christians who have invested uh, enormous time and energy and love and support and encouragement uh, through the early days of our Christian life and uh, bringing us into maturity, and I, I, I can see in my own mind the very faces. I can think of the names of so many who did that for me and, uh, and, do, and do it yet to this day, including you. But these people that were so instrumental within my life, at great sacrifice to themselves, they lived the life and the power of the Holy Spirit that they saw described in the Word of God, faithful. They could have lived a carnal life. They could have lived a backslidden life. They could have lived a self-determined life and lived a self-determined Christianity, but they didn't. And they weren't just the recipients of the blessings of having done that, but the rest of us were affected by that. What if everyone was a carnal Christian? Who would hear the gospel? What if everyone was a backslidden Christian? How would anyone get discipled in the body of Christ? It was because people lived the life, lived a holy life, and lived with a commitment to the victory that Christ has provided to us that allowed us to one day come into contact with such a person and then have our lives changed as well. And I, as I look at these people that I love so much in my own life that, that uh, produce this within my life, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but I'm as prone to be carnal, as, pro, as prone to be backslidden as anyone is. But I could not live with myself if having received so much from others who chose to walk the way that God called them to walk and to live their life as God had called them to so that I might be the beneficiary of that and then having received that, that that chain would stop in me and that I would not be the continuation of that process now into uh, the lives of the people around me. And my particular sh very short season in human history, do you think about, wouldn't it be something to be able to uh, see our spiritual family tree? I mean, people go online, and I certainly don't condemn it. I think it's interesting. Uh, they, people will, you know, you can get the swab in, in, with your mouth and send the DNA and they'll tell you uh, what you are in terms of your nationality and background. People are absolutely shocked 
when these results come back sometimes. My father-in-law, uh, I've lived 40 plus years around him, and all this uh, noise uh, about Norway and being a Norwegian, and you can always tell a Norwegian, you just can't tell him much. And I mean, he was the, the Viking of the family, and he sends off for this thing and comes back, and he's uh, overwhelmingly Irish. He's as bad off as I am. <clears throat> I don't have any respect for another Irishman. And, uh, but the same thing, you go back through your family tree and you find out what are the descendants and who came over on the Mayflower or whatever it might be. And, uh, but to think spiritually and to realize that your spiritual birth has roots and it has a line that goes all the way back to some individual who had a personal contact with Jesus himself in the land of Israel, and he heard that gospel, and he chose, he or she chose to uh, obey that gospel and then walk that life. And then, and then the next person, the next person, and the next person, and the chain of people that allowed you and I to hear that gospel. Excuse me. And then to be saved, and not only saved, but then to see an example in their life. There were people that you will never know and I will never know that lived in the 900s, in the 1500s, in the 1600s, the 1700s. We will never know them. Maybe we will know them someday uh, when we get to heaven. But when we think about these kind of people, each of us a personal beneficiary, of literally hundreds and thousands of Christians who walk the walk and they talk the talk, and, and during their lives they refuse to uh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, as Paul talks about here, and instead on the things of the Spirit, so one day we could be, hear the gospel and to be saved. And when I think about those people and, and who had that part in my salvation, when I read books like Fox's books of, Book of Martyrs, everybody ought to read it one time in their Christian life. It makes me want to be one of those people. And then in terms of obligation, we owe it also to the lost all around us. As Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And each and every one of us as Christians are a living advertisement for Christianity. And God calls upon us to be good advertisements for Christianity and to, as opposed to being a poor advertisement for Christianity. And uh, as the old saying goes, the uh, worst advertisement for Christianity in the world are, are Christians. And, uh, and to not be in that number. And, it, and unfortunately, it's true. Uh, and it only takes one out of a thousand to cause everybody to forget the other uh, 999. But each of us have this, this uh, responsibility to be this good living advertisement for Christianity. The fact of the matter is, is that once anybody knows, uh, any unsaved person knows that we are a Christian, especially in a, a post-Christian and a pagan culture, which is what we live in now, they will automatically assume being ignorant of the Bible themselves, they will assume that the life that we are living is a proper and an accurate representation of uh, Christianity. 
I do it with Muslims. I do it with Buddhists. I do it with atheists. I do it with secular humanists. You come and you tell me this is the master passion of your life. This is what you believe. This is what you live for. I now assume that I can look at you and I will have a proper representation of what it is that is the master passion of your life. And what I do and we do uh, for, uh, related to others, uh, others do to us concerning Christianity. And the Bible teaches that everyone has a right uh, to look at our lives as Christians and to see uh, uh, Christian life as it, it ought to be in, in, the wor- uh, in, in the Word. And it's a privilege to be able to do that. But it's a very, very sober responsibility as well to realize, as a gentleman by the name of William Toms said so long ago, he said, be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible some pe- uh, person ever reads. And that is more and more true in our culture than ever before. And we are a debtor to live a life that is holy and Christ-like, a debtor to the unsaved around us in that very regard. Paul tells us that uh, in verse 12 that we are no longer to be debtors to the flesh. And that, uh, that's something that's important to realize as a Christian, that we don't owe the flesh anything anymore. We don't have to uh, obey uh, the the lusts of the flesh. We don't have to obey the desires of the flesh. Uh, The flesh won't tell us that. You've got to go to the Bible to hear that. The flesh will whine and complain. And uh, you think you've seen a two-year-old throw a temper tantrum in the uh, uh, at the checkout counter of a, of a supermarket is nothing like the tantrum that the flesh will uh, throw when one day we stand as a Christian and say, no, you can't have that. No, I won't do that. Uh, one of the things that the flesh will do is try to take us down memory lane and remind us of all the great times that we had together. All, the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season, and it is. And to remind us of, of you know, all of the, 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 the relationship that we once had and, and, uh, and so forth. But uh, through all of it, we're to remember that we don't know, owe it anything. And the realization that we have invested enough of our lives uh, in the flesh and, and, and given enough of our lives to it uh, and actually more than it ever deserved. Again, Peter put it this way. I'll read the same passage, but read a little further into it. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that we should no longer live the rest of uh, this time uh, in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough time of our, last, uh, of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, reveries, drunken, uh, drinking parties, and abominable uh, idolatries. And to just stop and, and to realize that we're to leave all of that behind. Uh, we've invested 
invested enough in that and having invested in it is one of the reasons that we came to know the Lord and to think that now that I'm a Christian and I can go back and those sins will still have the same, uh, have a different end in my life now uh, than than they once did uh, is a folly. And so this is to be the mindset of the Christian who understands that sanctification, that holy living is a privilege that it is an honor, it is a blessing, but it is also an obligation that we owe to others. And that's very, very important to realize because very often in our own lives, we will, would never do for uh, ourselves uh, what we would do for others. And this raises the bar in terms of our motivation uh, related to uh, holy living. The fourth uh, part we play in our own sanctification, as he describes it there in verse 13, is to mortify the deeds of the flesh. And the deeds of the flesh simply speaks of the sinful practices of the body. It speaks of every temptation to use our body to serve sin or anything that we know is wrong as opposed to practicing holiness and and serving God and serving others. And what are we to do now with these uh, temptations? He tells us in the New King James, it says in verse 13, that we are to put them uh, to death. I don't like it in the New King James. I like it in the Old King James, and uh, where it says, mortify. (laughs) the deeds of the flesh. It says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. And the word mortify captures it exactly. And the word mortify means to execute. It means to cold-blooded murder. It means to show these things no mercy at all. And it, is, and it is in the present tense that Paul uses it here. In other words, it is something that we are to continually be doing uh, as uh, Christians. Uh, now, why the severity of the language? Why the use uh, of mortification uh, here and in such strong uh, language? Uh, because in, in terms of the need to mortify sin. And the reason that Paul uses, I think, the strength of the language here is because in terms of ruthlessness with sin is because sin will show absolutely no mercy to you. And that what we do with sin in our lives is literally a life and death decision. And when Paul writes, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, He's not suggesting that a Christian somewhere, you know, who sins is now going to face eternal judgment in hell as a result of it. What he's speaking of the spiritual and the physical death that every sin is intent upon producing within our lives. James deals with this and speaks of it the most soberly, as soberly as it needs to be spoken of in the New Testament. And he, and he wrote in, J, in James chapter 1, verse 13, he said, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each of us is tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
and, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And it's important to realize that any sin that I allow to continue uh, to live and to grow in my life, it is always working toward my destruction. It is always working to destroy me spiritually first and then to destroy me physically. I mean, you think about, I mean, if we really believe that, you think about how radically uh, we would deal with a cancer diagnosis. The first thing we would ask of any doctor, any oncologist, is how do I get rid of every one of those cells out of my body? What do we got to do to be absolutely ruthless with it? Let's mortify it. Let's cold-blooded murder this thing. Because what is cancer? It is something that works for our destruction, to destroy us on a physical level. And James is essentially telling us to view sin in our lives the same way. It is, allow, it is to allow something to live within our lives that is first going to destroy our relationship with God and then ultimately destroy us physically a, a, as well. And, it, and the strength of the words are, are so necessary for a knucklehead like me, and I think there's other knuckleheads in the room. But if you and I are here today and we're coddling some sin within our life and just playing with it. And like Samson, thinking that we have control of this, we're different from everyone else. It won't have a bad end for me. I'm different than everyone else. I'm stronger than everyone else. I know how to manage these things and keep this little sin uh, in its cage within, uh, within, within my life. And the idea that somehow I'll keep it from growing and it won't bring forth death in, in, in my life. And, and if I believe that this morning, then James says that, he, that we have bought the lie that he warns us against. And that's why he makes the exhortation related to sin. And then he says, do not be deceived, my brethren, because he just knows we have the tendency to just listen to this kind of stuff and have it go right over our heads and say, that's for somebody else. Wonderful sermon, but not for me in terms of the danger of sin. And so James says, do not be deceived, my brethren. There's an old saying and the saying is that the ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness with sin. If it is the working for our destruction, and it is, then we ought to, be, if it is that ruthless and what it is intending for us, then there is the need for us to be equally ruthless uh, with it as well. And that's exactly what Paul is communicating. I think it's important to realize that when Paul writes here, put to death the deeds of the flesh, that that put to death is a single word in the Greek. And it's a verb, and it is a, a, the active present tense. In other words, this putting or mortifying uh, the deeds of the body, this is going to be an ongoing thing within our lives all the way till the day we go to heaven. And we are to do, uh, do it as is necessary. In heaven, I will not have a fallen nature, neither will you as a Christian. There will not be these temptations. We won't have to deal with any of this kind of thing, but in this life, we do. And one of my favorite quotes related to, to uh, uh, holiness speaks to this very thing of the present tense nature of having to address these things within our life. And the quote goes like this, the life of holiness 
uh, means saying no to the flesh 10,000 times a week. And so often as Christians, we can be looking for angel dust. We're looking for a formula. We're looking for some conference that we can go to or some sermon that will crystallize all of it so that this can be taken care of once and for all, uh, 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 for all in our lives for the remainder of our pilgrimage, and that will not happen. Uh, the the uh, life of holiness is one of saying to, uh, no to the flesh 10,000 times a week. It isn't something where I can then look. That is the portion of everyone in life. And so often we can think, ah, no, concerning the sins that want to take me into bondage, you know, it's because I have a stronger pull to this sin. Uh, the apostle Paul living a holy life, it was easier because he wasn't like me. Or my Sunday school teacher, it's easier for him or her because they're not like me. Or my uh, Christian uh, friend at church or at work, you know, they live a more victorious Christian life than I do because it's easier for them than for me. And this is the blame-shifting of the culture. Now, it comes, a holy life comes to all of us exactly the same way, by mortifying uh, the deeds of the body, by saying no to the flesh 10,000 times uh, a, a week. And that's what's behind every holy life. It doesn't happen effortlessly or automatically for I anyone. I, I think that it's important to realize that Restraints from sin are not uh, mortifications uh, from sin. And you say, okay, now you, 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 you'd lost me before, but now you're, you're losing some, some kind of Christianese here. But this is what I, I mean by it, and I, and I wouldn't say it except I, th I think it's important. In other words, every one of us should set up whatever restraints or boundaries are required in our lives to keep us from uh, keep us safely separated from sin and from every sin, but especially of the sins that we know in our own lives. Those are the one, two, three, four sins that are the most likely to take me out and ruin my Christian uh, witness and to set up boundaries uh, related to these things, restraints uh, in, our, in our lives, restraints from sin. In other words, if I'm tempted by alcohol, I shouldn't go to a liquor store to buy a newspaper or to buy a loaf uh, of bread, or I shouldn't keep any alcohol in the home. Uh, well, I've got it here for Uncle Joe. He comes uh, once every six months and always likes a beer. No. If I'm tempted by drugs, I shouldn't drive home from work past the places that I used to buy drugs or where I know that I can buy drugs. If I'm tempted by pornography, I should set up some kind of accountability with someone or some protective device on the computer that locks that out. If I'm tempted by sexual immorality, I should burn every bridge uh, to uh, previously sexually immoral relationships that are, uh, where the person is still available to me. Uh, if I were to make that phone call and investigate once again, and to burn all of those bridges, remove all of the phone numbers that might still be in, in the phone. Uh, I should not meet with, uh, alone with the opposite sex. 
in, in this kind of, of, of a temptation, but rather interact uh, uh, safely in a group setting. And, and, uh, and on it goes, each of us, again, aware of the sins that are the most attractive to us, they pose the greatest danger to us and, and our desire for holiness. And these kind of self-imposed uh, restrictions are simply the actions of a Christian who is serious about living a holy life. It isn't to be an extraordinary Christian. Every Christian who is serious about a holy life must set up these kind of boundaries and restrictions within our lives. And it is, these are the characteristics of a person, a Christian, who is tired of their lives being dominated by sin. And I would contend that if a Christian does not set up these kind of restrictions in, in order to limit as much as possible uh, the, their exposure to the opportunity to sin, then, then that's a Christian who isn't sick of their sin yet and sick of its, its uh, domination within their life. And, and Paul's thought progression here, these kind of boundaries are established in order to protect sanctification and, and, and are just a given in his mind, that we would set up these kind of restraints within our life. He's unmistakable about it a little bit later in the book of Romans, where Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But he said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its love, uh, lusts. And what, what, is, uh, un, what is mistakeable about no? Make no provision for the flesh. And we saw it practiced in the book of Acts. Those new Christians in Ephesus come out of an occult background, come out of uh, witchcraft, saved out of it. And then we're told that also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the Word of God grew and prevailed within their lives. They were simply burning the bridges to sin, that it had once been a stronghold in uh, their life and, and, uh, and used to dominate their life. And in each of our lives, there are bridges, there are books, there are websites, there are telephone numbers, there are relationships, there are whatever that needs to be burned in order to protect the beauty of holiness within our lives. Again, the Apostle Paul wrote in this regard, Ephesians 4.27, he said, "'Give no place to the devil.'" That word place is topos in the Greek. It means the smallest little tiniest piece of area. He say literally, don't give him uh, an inch. Don't give sin even an inch within uh, your life. And in his own life, in this regard, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, but he said, I discipline my body. Uh, to bring it into subjection. Literally, I beat it black and blue, so to speak, uh, lest when ha I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified or cast away. None of this is theory to Paul. None of this is something that's distant from his own life and it's in his rearview mirror and, it, and, and that he doesn't have to deal with it. He doesn't, there's no present tense to mortification in his life. He says exactly the opposite. I run into the same struggles to live this kind of life as anyone else does. 
and he wanted us uh, to, to know that, that he practiced it, and it was a key to the life that we see in the Apostle Paul within, within the Scriptures. But, the, 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 but mortification, uh, this cold-blooded murder of the deeds of the body, it goes beyond restraint. We've talked about restraint. Mortification is a step beyond that. And mortification is what we do with the sins that get through the boundaries that we've established in order to protect uh, holy living. And when something gets through, we are to mortify it. We are to cold-blooded murder it. We are to show it absolutely no mercy. The reason that the restraint is important is so often a Christian can have a ten- some Christians can have a tendency to have no restraint within their life. It's like when I was a boy, my brother and I, uh, we lived in a town, and there was this place near the duplex that we lived in, and it was one of those big storm drains, and it was a storm drain that was so big that as an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, you could walk in it. We never walked all the way to the end to where it went, but uh, we took candles in and went as far as we could go and so forth. So a big, gigantic pipe. You know, it's one thing to have a pipe like that, a pipeline like that, of sin pouring into my life, of temptation on a daily basis, as opposed to a one-inch water line. And if we don't set up restraints, then all, everything that's going to come into our life is going to come in at such a rush and at such a flow, uh, mortification will be uh, virtually impossible. But with the restraint that we set within our life, the boundaries that we set within our life, it brings the flow down to something that is manageable, a trickle, something to where these things happen within our lives in such a way that as they come one at a time in terms of a temptation or a thought, now I can mortify that. I can then mortify that, and I can mortify that. So the restraint is a key to mortification. But the, and the restraint allows the mortification to be, to be success, uh, successful. And so here is this, we're, we're to mortify what gets through these boundaries that we set within our lives that the Bible calls us to. And then when something gets through and it becomes a temptation, it's gotten through the boundaries that we've set in our lives, then as an act of our will, how do we mortify it? It's to pray something like this. Lord, I reject this temptation. It exalts itself against the knowledge of God. I've already spent ample months and years and decades invested in this particular sin already in my life. And, uh, and, and uh, as an act of my will, I, and in the power of your Holy Spirit, I say no to this, uh, this temptation, this deed of the body, and I say yes to you, to your word, to your plan for my life. And in doing that, I mortify the temptation. And let me close with this because it's so important. In verse 13, notice that we, because you can't leave without it, that vital phrase concerning all of that, by the Spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, how is all of this possible in our lives? It's by the Holy Spirit within our lives. And the first two points that we talked about last week is there uh, in terms of the part we play in our own sanctification in verses 5 uh, through 11. And then the two points that we're looking at of, of the four uh, we're looking here found in verses uh, 12 and 13. 
but lest we would walk away from the last two weeks and think, okay, this is what I have to do in my own strength. It's important to notice that in between those series of exhortations here, in between those two sections is this absolutely majestic description of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in working to accomplish this within our lives. And even here in, in, uh, in uh, verse 13, he, he keeps the Holy Spirit here in calling us to sanctification as the central figure in our sanctification. You notice the language that he uses to describe the Holy Spirit. Again, all of this in the context of our sanctification. He calls him the Spirit of God, verse 9. Think about that. When I talk about people being born again and I talk about the Holy Spirit coming into their life, I almost always say it the same way, and that is God Almighty and the person of His Holy Spirit will come into your life because there's the marvel of it that He is the Spirit of God. That's who has come into our life now to empower us to this life. He's described the Holy Spirit as in verse 9 as the Spirit of Christ. He's the same Holy Spirit uh, that is the explanation between the power and the life of Jesus that we see described within the Scriptures, and the same power that empowered Jesus to live that life that we see in the Gospels and beyond is the power uh, that has come into our lives to live what God has called us to. In verse 10, he des- uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, he describes as Christ in you. Again, the Holy Spirit within us. Verse 10, the Spirit is life, and the idea that the Spirit is present within our lives to produce righteousness within us. In verse 11, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. A marvelous thought. The very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us. You can't put that into words. I mean, think about the power, not just physically resurrecting Jesus from the dead, but in, in, in defiance of the demonic realm as well. What was involved in raising Jesus from the dead, the power that was involved, and that power is in each of our lives, Paul says, as uh, Christians. And, and, and you, as you think about it, and then notice uh, in, in uh, verse 11, will also, that this same Holy Spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, what the Holy Spirit did in raising Jesus from the dead, He will do in us and leading us out of a spiritually dead life out of a life of bondage uh, of sin into a victorious Christian life. And then one day, he will raise us up into the absolute glory uh, of heaven itself. In other words, there's nothing that we face, nothing in life, nothing in death, nothing in the form of temptation that cannot and will not be overcome by the Holy Spirit within our lives. And so the passage teaches us that each of us has a place to play and a responsibility for our own sanctification as as Christians, and that our responsibility involves four things. Again, verse 5, first we're to refrain from living after uh, according to the flesh or setting our minds on the things of the flesh. Second, in verse 5, we're to live according to the, uh, live according to the Holy Spirit and to set our minds upon the things of the Spirit. 
And then third, we are to recognize that we're debtors to live this kind of life. And then fourth, we are to, in protecting uh, all of this uh, work of, of the Holy Spirit within our lives and this uh, desire for holiness uh, protected by the mortifying of the deeds of the body. And again, all of this, is, as Paul weaves it in every which way that he can, all that is possible because of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives as Christians. And to that I say, hallelujah. Let's stand together and we'll pray now in closing. Father, we thank you for um, the power and the strength of this passage. We thank you this morning that, that you tell us things that Increasingly, no one in the world will tell us as the culture is engaged more and more in, in blame shifting and uh, providing excuses than a call to stand and, and to be different. But Lord, we don't go to the world. We don't go to the culture for these things. We go to you and we thank you for what you've spoken in your word to us here this morning. And we thank you from the bottom of our heart, every single one of us as Christians, as we stand before you, thank you for how far you have taken us in this sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit within our lives. We thank you for um, the fact that we are not what we once were and that we know that this has occurred within our lives not because of our own determination, our own strength, but because you have done a miracle within our lives. And Lord, it makes us excited to see where this continuing work of sanctification in us by your Spirit is going to take us next. And we yield to you, and we surrender to you, and we eagerly long for the next area in our life that you're going to conform more fully into the image of Christ. And we ask for it. And we pray, Lord, in the privacy of our hearts here this morning, if in any, to any degree as Christians, a large degree or small degree, that we have ceased in the power of your Spirit to step up and do what it is that you've called us to do in all of this, and then to learn what we learn as we do it. If we become careless in any of these areas, that you would use this time in your Word to return us to uh, vigilance in all of this and uh, the attitude and the heart of a debtor. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.